Our text today comes from Romans 10, starting in verse 8. On the contrary, what does it say? The message is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. This is the message of faith that we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame, since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The word of God given as a gift to the people of God. Three weeks ago, we talked about practicing worship. Steve preached that one for us, and it really set the tone for the whole series. And then a week later, we walked through the practice of fellowship, and last week, the practice of submitting to the Word, and this week, the practice of confession. Now, I'll confess one thing up front. Topical sermons like this are hard for me. You give me a text, I know I kind of have the, the parameters set. I can just walk through a passage and work through what it meant, what it means for all people at all times, and then find a way to apply it to us today. That I'm very comfortable with. A topic like confession is so broad, and it just brings to mind so many different images. First one that came to my mind was that of a confessional. You know, usually in a Roman Catholic setting, but others as well, you have a, uh, usually a, a two rooms right next to each other, usually made out of wood with a screen in between, and you would go in there, and there's some anonymity to it, and you can confess your sins to a priest. But then confession I, I also brings to mind, like, the, the commission of a crime. And I think of all of these television shows where, you know, it's a gray room with one-way glass and a single naked bulb hanging down, and you have an interrogator just grilling someone trying to get them to confess, like my wife, parents, or kids, just trying to get them to confess. My wife's not really a funny person. She doesn't try to make jokes, usually, but sometimes she's accidentally hilarious. Um, One time the kids were back in one of their rooms and apparently a fight had broken out. And Rachel, I hear her walking down the hall singing to herself, da-na-na-na-na, Inspector Rachel, da-na-na-na-na. And she did get them to confess. She's very good at it. Um, confession sometimes brings to mind uh, like a certain posture. You know, with contrition comes like a, a, a submissive look. Um, on Mondays and Thursdays here at the church, we have prayer services, and part of those prayer services involve a corporate confession of sin. It's very generic. We're not all saying what we've done, you know, the last couple of days, but it's a generic confession of sin, and normally whoever's leading the prayer services asks everyone to kneel when we do the confession. And there's something about this kind of vulnerable position that just postures you for confessing sin, so that comes to mind. Um, there's also an element of secrecy 
to confession. Like, hey, you don't know this, but I have to confess what's been going on. Confession also carries with it just a declaration of what is true. When I was little, I grew up going to an elementary school where our morning routine was to hear the announcements read over the speakers, and then the whole school would say the Pledge of Allegiance. We would confess our allegiance to the United States. That was a, that was a confession of sorts. Some traditions actually have confessional documents. They have documents that summarize what they believe. You may have heard something like the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's, a, it's an important document primarily for Presbyterian churches, but other denominations have them as well. We don't really have something like that, but there's that kind of confession. So you can see, as I'm working on what we need to talk about today, I just, I'm almost hamstrung by so many options. But then I know, like, the series is about every given Sunday. This is what we practice in here so that we can do something else out there. And okay, that, that limits things a little bit for me. Um, okay, so what do we do in here? We, um, so today's order is we had a song, we had a welcome, we had the reading of Scripture, now we're having the teaching of Scripture. We'll follow with a song, we'll take communion, song, song, giving, prayer, dismissal. Where's the confession? Okay, well, maybe the Bible will help us narrow this down a little further. So I just looked. Okay, so how is confession used in Scripture? In the Old Testament, it comes from this word, yada, used 111 times, but it has what's known as semantic range. It, it can mean a variety of things. And in your Bibles, this word is translated various ways, such as praise, to confess is to praise someone, to give thanks, or to just confess. In the New Testament, we have two words for it. It's used um, less frequently, but you have fewer books. So the first is ex amulegeo, which is, uh, it occurs ten times. It is translated as agree, profess allegiance, admit, give thanks, praise. Then there's a very closely related word called homilegeo, which means to acknowledge, to confess, especially the faith, and to promise. Of the 36 uses of these words for confession in the New Testament, only a handful actually are translated in the context of confessing sin, which was very interesting. The vast majority of time the New Testament talks about confessing. It's about proclaiming something, proclaiming truth or proclaiming allegiance to someone or something. I think... At its root, we have two basic meanings, if we can kind of sum it up, that are most important for us today. One, there is the confession of faith, and then there's the confession of sin. And I think they are intrinsically connected to one another. I don't think you could do one without the other, actually, at least not in the Christian context. But before we go much further, I think it's important that we recognize that there are two groups of people in this room this morning at least as it relates to confession. And without going into too much detail just yet, there are in this room those who confess and those who don't. There are probably even most of you are people that have confessed a faith in Christ. And yet I know there are some in here who have not confessed 
and allegiance to Jesus. And I'm glad that we have both groups, strange as it may sound, because I think the Bible actually speaks to both. Last week, Jim talked about our need to know the word, to value the word, and to trust slash obey the word. And I think we're going to find that confession is so connected to scripture that 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 kind of framework works for this really well, too. So I think we need to spend some time knowing our confession, knowing our confession. In the Gospels, Peter makes a confession of faith, you are the Messiah, Um, demons confess that they know who Jesus is, although it's not a confession of allegiance, it's a recognition of what is true. You have these short kind of exclamations that are pithy little confessions, important confessions, but they're small. But I want to spend, if if we only have so much time here, that's what they tell me, but this is second service, so I'm almost playing with house money. Um, I want to limit things to Paul. Paul is, his, his letters drip with confessional statements about who Jesus is. And as I read through these, I want you to notice that Paul does not talk much about us when he confesses Christ. In fact, he does not even talk as much about the Father and the Spirit. His confessions are so Christocentric and Christosaturated that it really gives us an indication of what it is we need to know and when we're talking about the, the rudiments of the faith, okay? So I'm going to read through these. I won't pause for a ton of comment, uh, commentary. That's a lie. I'm going to talk about it the whole time. So, but we're going to read through this stuff, and I just want you to see how Paul has like one song he keeps singing over and over in different contexts with different ways to different people. He says this in what Rebecca just read. This is Romans 10. I'm going to go for just verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth, what? Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart resulting in righteousness and one confesses with the mouth resulting in salvation. Paul distills all of it down to a confession of Christ's lordship and his resurrection. He doesn't in anywhere imply that other things don't matter. That verse is from Romans. A lot of things matter in Romans. But I think we're going to find a very obvious pattern when Paul talks about making a good confession. So Christ's lordship and God raised him from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, the great resurrection chapter. We have an account of the resurrection in all four Gospels, but the one that ties it together theologically is 1 Corinthians 15. And in the first five verses, Paul says this, Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preach to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. A uh, classically long and laborious Pauline way of saying, hey, this is what you already believe, and I'm reminding, it, I'm reminding you of what you've already agreed to so that you will stand firm in your faith. I'm reminding you of your confession. And then he says, this is what it is. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. So what are some important aspects of the confession that Paul is tying together here? Um, That Jesus died in the place of someone else, that this was prophesied by the Old Testament, those are the scriptures he's referencing, 
that he was actually buried, he actually died. It wasn't some, there's lots of theories about how Jesus didn't actually die. No, the overwhelming testimony of the early church is that he actually died, and then he actually came back to life. And then Paul says, that it's, by the way, he says that, that that resurrection was according to the scriptures. And then he says, and he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and to the rest of the 12. Meaning that it, this isn't something that we speculate. There is proof. There are eyewitnesses. And this is what I want you to know. He died, was buried, resurrected, and there are witnesses. In Philippians 2, probably the most beautiful poetic form of one of Paul's confessions He says this to the church in Philippi, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, and this just beautiful passage about him, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In one short poem, which in the early church was soon thereafter adopted as a worship song, Paul says this, Jesus has existed for all of eternity, preexisted with the Father. He says this, that he came and he set aside his right to divinity. Though he was never not divine, he laid aside his access to many of his rights as God. And then he poured himself out, assuming the form of a servant. If 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 you're a first century um, believer in Philippi, your mind is likely going to two texts here, if you've, if you've been taught the Old Testament. The suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53, and then I would be thinking of Mark 10 if I had access to it. Again, I don't know if they did, but where Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Paul's connecting these threads into one person. He humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, death on a cross, And then he was exalted, he was resurrected, and he was enthroned, given the name that is above all names. One of the most um, important passages in the New Testament regarding the the, the Trinity, actually. Because what, this is, we're not even in my sermon now, this is just interesting to me. Um, What is the name that is above all names? Yahweh. Jesus was made equal to Yahweh, even though he was always equal to Yahweh. So one of the classic Trinitarian texts, back in the sermon. Okay, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, so he is Lord. Again, back to Paul's statement in Romans 10. And then every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord, and all this brings glory to the Father. Some really important doctrines about the person and work of Jesus there. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes to his young disciple, Timothy. He says, I write these things to you, hoping to come to you soon. 
But if I should be delayed and I have written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth, and most certainly the mystery of godliness is great. He was manifested in the flesh, there's the incarnation, vindicated in the spirit, there's the resurrection, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory, there's the ascension again. All these essential ideas about who Jesus is, it is swirling in Paul's letters. These letters were written to Christians. These are not evangelistic letters. These are letters reminding members of God's church what they believe. They're confessions of faith. But then, in like James, it will say something like, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. So the confession of sin between you and I, it's not lost in the New Testament. It's there. Even public confession is at times demonstrated. In Acts 19, when there's this, this big conversion and people are giving up all their occult practices, it says, many who became believers came confessing and disclosing their practices, while many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. So they calculated their value, found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. But they came confessing. It says to confess your sins to one another. The one thing I couldn't find was confession of sin taking place in the context of a public worship service. I can't find a biblical example of bringing someone up here to confess out there. Let's not lay that aside too quickly. But I, there's no biblical evidence for something like that. Again, we're talking about every given Sunday here. Regarding the confession of faith and then confessing our sins, you might ask, why is this so important? On the confessing our faith side, I think it's critical that we get this right because you cannot follow someone you don't know. You can't love someone you don't know can't obey someone you don't know, and you can't trust someone you don't know. I mean, what if I was going around talking about how much I love my wife, I love my wife, I love my wife, and then I just started to describe I love her blonde hair and her blue eyes and just how she's really not that. I love that about my wife. Any of you who know Rachel Vincent would say, I don't think you love your wife. You did not just describe your wife. Do you even know her? She's taller than that. And she has dark hair and dark eyes. I think our confession is so important because we need to know him in order to love him and follow him and obey him. So what are some steps that we can take to knowing this confession better? First of all, we could talk about it. These are the things that I think we ought to spend a lot of time going over, going over, going over. This is the stuff that might come as a surprise, but I drill my kids at home on just random facts. This is the kind of stuff that I want them to know. I don't need some, uh, some theological minutia from Habakkuk. I need them to know this stuff. We have to talk about it. Here's a thought. Share the gospel. That's how we know our confession. Now you might say, well, I'm, I'm uncomfortable sharing the gospel because I don't have a really good grasp of what it is, and I don't know if I'll have every answer to the questions that they might ask. Fine. Practice. I, I, I keep giving this appeal. You can practice sharing the gospel on me. I can play the role of a very unruly pagan. You can practice sharing the gospel on me. We can get better at this. But in order to share it, you must know it. 
And once you're tasked with sharing it, it's amazing how you start to know it. John Piper once put it like this. I thought this was beautiful. He said, in terms of of knowing God, he said, swim in the Bible. And I love that image. He says, swim in the Bible. And then he says, don't just give it a little touch on your way out the door before you go off and do what it is you really want to do. Swim in the Bible. I love that. That advice is so good. Another way that you can know our confession is to study summaries of the faith. You can go read the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed. Those get increasingly longer. You might start with the Apostles' Creed. You can go and study the, the text that I've just covered. And rote memorization might be your best tool in that area. You can go and you could read our statement of faith on our website. It's amazing how many people have been at Sunnybrook for years and then they read something about our statement of faith and now they want to talk about it. And it's like, yeah, we've believed that the whole time. We need to familiarize ourselves with these things. The gospel, when we know it really well, this is how it connects to confession of sin, it underscores our need for God's grace and our ongoing need for the Holy Spirit to sanctify and refine us. Confession of faith and confession of sin are so intrinsically connected that they cannot be separated. One thing that you might consider is to just memorize this creed. I'm teaching this one to my kids, the Apostles' Creed. It's short. But I'll tell you, let me, let me encourage you with this. My kids are six and four. The six-year-old already knows it. The four-year-old's getting close. That doesn't mean that they understand it in its entirety, but I'm 34 and neither do I. But these are the things I want to bury in their hearts, such that when they start to make connections down the road, they have a well to draw from. So we take it line by line. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. Some, some translations of this say he descended to hell. This is way better. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of God. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Feel the rich biblical doctrine condensed down into that one statement. This is no replacement for Scripture. I'm not advocating for that at all. But it drives my family, at least, to Scripture. For example, when I was teaching my kids the first line, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, I noticed when they would say it back to me, they kept leaving out Almighty. That's just childishness. It's fine. We can fix that. But it gave us a wonderful opportunity to talk about why is Almighty in there. And before you know it, we're in Genesis 1, talking about God's power. And we're in the resurrection accounts in the Gospels, talking about God's power. That's why it's in there. And I'm helping them make these connections. I want to take something they already know and connect it to something transcendent. This is a wonderful way to learn your faith. And then I asked my son, I said, hey, did you notice that there's a structure to it? He said, no. Dad, I didn't see a structure. I said, well, okay, look, there is, like, God is the creator and the owner of all things, and then there's Jesus the Son, he's the redeemer of all things, and then there's the Holy Spirit who gives life to the church, and this is what it looks like to live in the church. It very much follows this creator, redeemer, animator uh, structure, and it just gives me one more reason to take him to Scripture, and he knows how to confess this faith. 
It's one thing to know it. We need to value it, too. We need to value our confession. Okay, what do you mean by that? Ryan, isn't this just your hobby horse? Don't you just love all these old documents and church history? And it's fine for you to like it. Do we really need to care about it as much as you do? Do we really need to be as precise as you think we ought to be? I think, I think so. I think there's this little part of all of us that just wants to ask, aren't you taking this a little too seriously? I mean, come on. Is it really important to know that like he descended to the dead part? Yes, it is, by the way. But I think all of us have that suspicion that we might be taking this a little too seriously. But let me say this. Our confession, in both senses of the word, confession of faith and confession of sin, I don't think that I'm overstepping at all when I say what you confess determines everything about you. And if that's true, then I think we have to take it seriously. And uh, I think precision matters. Because as the people of God, we are saved by God's grace through faith. We need grace because of sin, and we... We can, we can engage that grace through a confession of faith. Confess sin, confess faith. They're, they're woven together. We need to value it. And another reason that we need to value our confession is because there are so many pseudo-gospels competing for airtime. I'm not talking about Islam or Buddhism versus Christianity. The distinctions there are obvious, no matter what the coexist sticker says. There are differences there. That's obvious. I'm talking about the Christian variants when it comes to maybe Jesus was created and then became divine. No. Maybe Jesus didn't actually die. Maybe he didn't actually resurrect. Maybe that's more of some sort of uh, myth the church created to inspire us. when When you take the essence of the Christian faith and you vary it by a millimeter, you've actually changed it by worlds of degrees. It matters. And we need to practice our confession so that we're prepared to suss out poor alternatives. I mentioned earlier that we have our prayer services on Monday mornings and evenings and Thursday mornings and evenings. You're all invited, by the way, if you would like to come. 9 o'clock and 4.30 on Mondays and Thursdays. One thing we do is we read that confession, a a general confession, no specifics. But Scott Irwin said this last Monday. He said one of the things that he's grown to value as it relates to that kind of pre-written, scripted confession of sin that we say together, he said it taught him to always have before him his need for God's grace, his ongoing need to repent. And he said it's that general confession and its regularity that has spurred him on to greater and deeper personal, particular confession of sin. And I'll read it for you. This is what we say. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. Those two first lines are... It's amazing how it just sets the tone for everything to follow because you have Almighty Father who's also merciful. And then you have us, lost sheep. 
It really determines the relationship quite well. And then we continue. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We've offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. It's a beautiful reminder that, yeah, a lot of my sin is sin of commission. It's something I do. But then there's sin of omission. There's failing to do what is right. And this asks me to remember both. Then it says, apart from your grace, there is no health in us. And then watch this pivot. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Spare all those who confess their faults. Restore all those who are penitent according to your promises declared to all people in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that's the Son, that we may now live a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of your holy name. Amen. I love that because it is both a confession of sin and a confession of faith. The gospel's in it. And it reminds me that I can confess my sin with freedom because this grace is real. Another thing that uh, I've, I've started to do with my kids so that they would value their confession is also teaching them the Lord's Prayer. Now, on the screens, you're going to have the Christian Standard Bible version. Of course, I teach my kids the King James Version because it just sounds better. You, you know it's true, okay? So, I teach my kids, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and then I have to explain what hallowed means, and I just look at the CSB. It means be honored, okay? That's great. But notice as you go through the Lord's Prayer what they're learning. Again, they memorized it far before they understood it. It's a beautiful prayer. Because the first two lines are, Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It establishes who God is. As we get to the confession of sin side, we're confessing the faith the whole way down. It establishes who God is. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Tells us the goal of our lives. Tells us our goal is to bring the kingdom of God to bear on all things now, and it will be complete one day. Give us this day our daily bread. Yes, mom and dad work. Yes, we manage the finances around here. But Matthew and Audrey, you must understand it is God who provides for us. He is the sustainer. Even at a young age, they can start to understand these basic biblical concepts. Forgive us our trespasses or debts as we forgive those who trespass against us. Tells us that we are in need of regular forgiveness, which assumes confession to God. And then it says, in response to that, we forgive others, which kind of assumes some confession between brother and sister. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God will help us live the righteous life, kids. That is his expectation, and he will not abandon us. This, is, this leads to the discussions about the Holy Spirit. And then, in the King James, we finish it with the non-scriptural tag, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's not actually in the Bible. It was added later on, so the CSB didn't put it there. 
ends it with, deliver us from the evil one. You can imagine how some Bible translators are like, that's a terrible way to end a prayer. And then he added something. I teach them that part, though. They know it's not in the Bible, but it's also true. Just understanding our faith does so much to underscore our need to confess and to repent. But again, how do we do that on Sundays? Well, we practice our confession when we sing songs about who God is. And songs are um, item number one in the long string of evidence that we're all much better at memorization than we believe. We memorize these things, and we, we know our confession. We practice that. We practice our confession when the words of God are read over us with no commentary. One of my favorite ways to hear the scriptures is to just, I, I know we, we need to be taught, but I, I love just hearing the text read to me. And then letting the the weight of God's words rest on me, that's practicing my confession because that will either inform me and reinforce the faith that I already know and believe or it will convict me to confess and repent and change. We practice when we read Scripture. We practice when Scripture is taught over us. My goodness, do we practice our confession when we take the Lord's Supper. It might be the most confessional thing we do every week. It says that I am someone who needed a body given for me, blood spilled for me, and that I believe I know who did that. And every week we reaffirm our faith and our need for saving. That's confession and confession. We practice our confession when we say, I believe so much in what God is doing that I'm willing to give of my resources toward his work. We practice our confession when we pray together. When we voice our needs to God, we underlie the fact that he is the creator and he is the sustainer and he does want to give us good things. When we practice our confession like this, it prepares us for the rest of the week at home, at work, at school, wherever. It practice, that practice prepares us to defend our faith well. Again, to kind of sniff out counterfeits and speak to that. It prepares us to declare our faith well, to invite the lost and hurting world to experience the saving grace of Christ. It prepares us to beg God to give us people who are willing to hear the gospel such that those baptismal waters will be stirred more frequently. It prepares us to regularly understand our own need to be forgiven and to be sanctified and to be made more holy. So we need to know it, we need to value it, but then what does it look like to trust and to obey our confession? Well, like I said, I think that what you confess determines everything about you. So some of the clearest ways we demonstrate our faith and our trust and our obedience to Christ is to proclaim his name and to confess our crimes. Both of those things demonstrate an unbelievable amount of trust in him. This matters, though, because like we've got to pause here for just a minute because confession is hard. And I even think of both sorts. It's rather difficult. 
What are some of the reasons that we find it difficult to confess our faith? The reasons I found are that we, we feel we don't know it well enough, or we feel that we're not going to have all the answers to the questions, as I already mentioned. But I think that the underlying fear is this question rattles around in our brains. What will they think of me? When they find out that I've sworn my allegiance to this Jesus, what will they think of me? It's really an, an, an element of misplaced fear. Will they think that I too am just a bigot on the wrong side of history? That I take an exclusive view of the human race's fate? That I'm not being generous or kind? Will they think those things about me? And in many cases, probably. But again, if that silences us, then that is misplaced fear. I think the same is true for the confession of sin. We may have tricked ourselves into thinking that we don't really have much sin to deal with, or we've justified it, or it's not that big of a deal. But I think that what holds back our ability to confess our sins to one another is that question, what will they think of me? When they know that about me, what will they think of me? Another instance of misplaced fear because that means I fear your opinion of me or how this is all going to shake out more than I fear the risen Lord. How do we deal with that, though? What are some steps we can take toward trusting the Lord in this? We could ask ourselves these questions. Am I alone in my sin? Do, do other people know me that well? Those that, like... I claim to have a very close relationship with, do they know what I struggle with? I ask myself, when was the last time I confessed something to a godly friend? With wisdom and discernment, sure. But when's the last time I confessed something? You could ask yourself, am I someone people would be comfortable talking with about their sin? Can I be trusted? Am I vulnerable enough to speak the truth and have it spoken back to me? And as I wrestled through these questions, I realized confession, it really is hard. There's this interesting conclusion to the Lord's Prayer that demonstrates that it just assumes that there's going to be confession in the community, in the fellowship, because this is the part we seldom read. It says, Jesus concludes, for if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well, assuming there's offenses that need to be dealt with and confession being made. But if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. Well, that is terrifying. It must be true. And we can do that. We can live that out because of our confession. Because Jesus is who he said he was. And because his grace and his mercy and his wisdom are limitless. Now God is the only one that can truly forgive sin. So we must confess to him first and foremost. But my fear is that for the vast majority of us, that's where we'd rather leave it. 
I'm comfortable confessing my sins to God. And that's probably where we'll stop. If all of our sin is between us and God, I think we may be in more danger than we realize. found this very interesting little um, section in, at the end of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book called Life Together. As the, the last chapter is all on confession. And this is, what it, this is what he says about those private moments. He says, why is it that it is often easier for us to confess our sins to God than to a brother? God is holy and sinless. He is a just judge of evil and the enemy of all disobedience. But a brother is as sinful as we are. He knows from his own experience the dark night of secret sin. Why should we not find it easier to go to a brother than, than to the holy God? But if we do, we must ask ourselves whether we have not often been deceiving ourselves with our confession of sin to God. Whether we have not rather been confessing our sins to ourselves and also granting ourselves absolution. And is not the reason perhaps for our countless relapses and the feebleness of our Christian obedience to be found precisely in the fact that we are living on self-forgiveness and not a real forgiveness. Self-forgiveness can never lead to a breach with sin. This can be accomplished only by the judging and pardoning of pardoning word of God itself. Who can give us the certainty that in the confession and the forgiveness of our sins, we are not dealing with ourselves but with the living God? God gives us this certainty through our brother. Our brother breaks the cycle of self-deception. Strong words. I think he's right. Sin thrives in private. It will slowly, quietly eat you alive. And I think that I've often deceived myself into thinking that I've, I've reconciled myself to God because I had a thought about my sin and a thought about God in, in, consecu in consecutive order. But I don't have the people asking me, hey, you know, you know that thing that you were struggling with? Are you, are you doing all right? I don't have the accountability when it's all private. Now, I'm not saying that we get up and we just air all of our dirty laundry. That, I think, would be foolish. But if we have no one to talk to about our sins, they may just eat us alive. Our confession matters. There are um, two groups in this room, I said this earlier, those who confess and those who don't. My brothers and sisters in the faith, those of you who confess the risen Christ, keep confessing who he is and who you are. And with all that you can muster, confess your sins to God and when appropriate, and with wisdom and discernment, confess them to a brother or a sister. To my friends in this room who have not confessed Christ, first, I want you to know, we love you. And God loves you infinitely more. I'm glad you're here today. And this is my plea to those of you who have not yet confessed Christ, that you will consider once more Paul's words in Philippians 2. He said in verse 10, at the name of Jesus, 
every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee and every tongue. It's not a matter of if you'll confess who Christ is. It's a matter of when. And I ask you to consider confessing him as your Lord and Savior now instead of having to do it by compulsion on the day of judgment. I believe that that's important, and I believe that it's true in part because I believe the words of this final passage from Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. You just have the baptismal imagery washing over this page. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering since he who promised is faithful. There's your confession of faith. It says hold on to it. And then it follows... It says, and let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day approaching. So it says, let us hold on to the confession of our hope, our faith confession. And then it's almost assuming the context where we can freely confess sins to one another, because as we do, we're not trying to shame one another. We're trying to watch out for one another, to provoke one another to love and to good works and to encourage one another. If you hear nothing else this morning, I pray that you will hear that last bit of verse 23. He is faithful in all things. He is faithful so that we can confess our faith and he is faithful to forgive us when we confess our sins. So, to both groups, to everyone in the room, I leave you with a critical question that you must answer. Do you practice your confession?